Hello and welcome to Didian Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem podcast. Today, today, the second episode of serials 9 through 12 in Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Today, we're going to do the informal portion of the episode, episode 3B. So if you have not listened to episode 3A yet or the others, I'd highly recommend those. They're all linked under the homepage on relevanceofliterature.com. Today's episode will be organized in serials and chapters, and I'll be going over specifically lots of page numbers, observations, things that do not fit into the primary plot summary episode that we aired last week. And we'll start right off here. We're starting with Serial 9, Chapter 26, page 359 in the Barnes & Noble Classics edition. Quote, It consists of a limp and ugly figure carried in a chair by two bearers and attended by a lean female with a face like a pinched mask who might be expected immediately to recite the popular verses, commemorative of the time when they did contrive to blow old England up alive, but for her keeping her lips tightly and defiantly closed as the chair is put down. At which point the figure in it, gasping, Oh Lord, oh dear me, I am shaken, adds, Howdy-do, my dear friend, howdy-do. Mr. George then describes in the possession the venerable Mr. Smallweed, out for an airing, attended by his granddaughter Judy as bodyguard, unquote. So here we're looking in on Mr. George in chapter 26. We have just followed him along with his morning routine with Phil, and all of a sudden Mr. Smallweed shows up in his chair that he evidently never leaves, and His granddaughter, Judy, of course, is with him, shaking him up, puffing him up as needed. And what's particularly interesting about this passage is that there's a perspective shift similar to when Esther first beholds Chesney Wald, the the Deadlock's house at Chesney Wald, when she's visiting Boythorn for the first time. This house that we've been inside, we've been around, we've been toured around this house before, takes on a completely different perspective because of the person viewing it. And here we have, of course, the omniscient narrator in the chapter, and yet we have this very grotesque description of Mr. Smallweed that's very different in some respects to the descriptions that we've gotten of him before when he's in his house and he's a little bit more regal, a little bit more blown up. He's still this insufferable old man in both pictures, but the image is slightly different. The other thing that I wanted to mention about this section is that, of course, there's money involved. Mr. Smallweed comes to George in this manner and is kind of painted in this despicable light because he believes that George has no right to refuse his request to bring Hawden's handwriting to Tolkienhorn. So 
in this case, the money and the judgment and the reason for Mr. Smallweed's visit could be coloring the picture that Dickens, through this omniscient narrator, is painting here. So, a limp and ugly figure. Lean female with a face like a pinched mask. Okay, Judy's description evidently isn't too different than before. But Mr. Smallweed, this, lean, this limp and ugly figure on page 359, may be a little bit colored or determined by the different facets of his reasons for being in that space in the shooting gallery. Chapter 27, page 365 through 366. Quote, Mr. George is mightily curious in respect of the room. He looks up at the painted ceiling, looks round at the old law books, contemplates the portraits of the great clients, reads aloud the names on the boxes. Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet, Mr. George reads thoughtfully. Ha, Manor of Chesney, Wald. Humph. Mr. George stands looking at these boxes a long while as if they were pictures and comes back to the fire repeating, Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet, and Manor of Chesney Wald, hey? So here we have on page 365 and 366, that was the quote. Mr. George picks up on the Tolkienhorn Dedlock connection right away as soon as he enters into Tolkienhorn space. And this is absolutely not by accident. This is one of those little moments within the text that you would otherwise miss, <laughs> but that Dickens takes care to include because Dickens, I think, is wanting to reinforce this Dedlock Tolkienhorn connection with Mr. George Present with regard to this whole mystery affair of what's going on with Lady Dedlock, what is the connection of all these characters to Hawden, how does that relate to the Chancery case, Jarndyce and Jarndyce. It's a big twisted knot at the moment, and this collection of serials is probably the most plot advancing collection of serials that we've read thus far in the sense that we start to, in the course of these serials, untie the knots of the plot and the connections between the characters are already fairly solid by this point in our reading. We're more than halfway through by this point. So we're really wanting to A, hold on to all of the connections that Dickens has made throughout serials one through eight and be wanting to further and further complexify, that is, those connections in these serials as we're untying the knots of the plot. So I found it fascinating that this little moment was included in this respect, in this particular passage, because Mr. George really doesn't have anything to do with the Leicester deadlocks, and yet we have this moment where he recognizes their name, he picks up on the connection, and that connection is commented on. And so it's a cue to us as readers, don't forget this connection. Perhaps this serves as foreshadowing, rather, maybe not in this particular group of serials, but maybe later on. Also in chapters 27, we have 
the name Bagnet, and <laughs> Matt Bagnet is Mr. George's friend and fellow ex-soldier, and I just found this name funny. I know that Dickens is known for his naming and his very characteristic naming, that is, and Bagnet really sounds like an instrument to me. I mean, I am a music major, so I can say that I've heard of a lot of instrument names, and it just is funny to me that Dickens had such an ear for names and for language in this respect. Chapter 28, page 385. This passage is when the housekeeper's son, Mr. Rouncewell, comes and he is asking essentially for Rosa's hand in marriage for his young son. But really, he's asking preliminarily for her to be educated, taken out of the deadlock household, and educated so that she can be in a position to marry his son. And here's Lady Deadlock with Rosa. Quote, Rosa, with fresh tears, kneels at her feet and kisses her hand. My lady takes the hand with which she has caught it, and standing with her eyes fixed on the fire, puts it about and about between her own two hands, and gradually lets it fall. Seeing her so absorbed, Rosa softly withdraws, but still my lady's eyes are on the fire. In search of what? Of any hand that is no more, of any hand that never was, of any touch that might have magically changed her life? Or does she listen to the ghost's walk and think what step does it most resemble? A man's? A woman's? The pattering of a little child's feet ever coming on, on, on? Some melancholy influence is upon her, or why should so proud a lady close the doors and sit alone upon the hearth so desolate?" Unquote. What a beautiful, lush, fascinating passage. When we get a little bit of a glimpse into the private life of Lady Deadlock behind the mask, behind the smoke and mirrors, and she is allowing Rosa to make her own choice, as much of a choice as she can make for herself with regard to this upcoming move or not. Does she want to stay with deadlocks or not? And she's really giving Rosa the choice that her potential child is not getting. And I found this line particularly revealing the pattering of a little child's feet ever coming on, on, on. And it seems like this pattering of children's feet is, a sim is symbolic of her own guilt, of her, what she thinks is her dead child and what she realizes is probably her alive child that she has never taken care of. And the desolation of the passage is also something that strikes me, sort of a likening of the ghost's walk as a metaphor for her own conscience and her own vision for herself, maybe of the past following her. Footsteps, movement, but the footsteps are stuck. They're kind of going through this passage again and again. It's cyclic and you can't see them, right? It's only an echo, like the past. Chapter 29, page 386. On all the house, there was a cold, blank smell, like the smell of a little church, though something drier, suggesting that the dead and buried deadlocks walk there in the long nights and leave the flavor of their graves behind them." Unquote. 
Also a very lush passage, only one page later. <laughs> you can imagine me reading like, wow, wow, so great. Dickens's prose really stands up to the test here when he's talking about the emotions and so he's really foreshadowing, he's spinning a web for what's to come for especially Lady Deadlock and all of the places that represent her. And I really like this quote in part because it ties in the church scene where Lady Deadlock and Esther meet for the first time. Esther gets this convicted feeling like, I can't believe that I've seen this woman. She gets this feeling like, I know this woman, but she doesn't know where. Lady Deadlock gets this perturbed feeling where she's like, we know this from her letter later, where she's like, if my child had lived, this is what she would have looked like. And all tied up neatly within this beautiful quote where the church is mentioned, but also this newfound desolation is mentioned. A blank smell, a cold blank smell, like the smell of a little church, the something drier, suggesting that the dead and buried deadlocks walk there, the ghosts walk again as a metaphor, and the long nights and leave the flavor of their graves behind them. And I really love how Dickens is incorporating more than just sight here. He's incorporating, incorporating smell and using these, these sensory cues as a way to further articulate through language this state, again, of desolation, of remembrance, of remonstrance for oneself. It's fascinating how he, after using this metaphor and spinning it out and spinning it out, starts to incorporate these other senses as well. Still in chapter 29, page 388 at the top of the page. Quote, the man's mind is not so well balanced, but that he bores my lady, who after a languid effort to listen, or rather a languid resignation of herself to a show of listening, becomes distraught and falls into a contemplation of the fire as if it were her fire at Chesney Wald and she had never left it. Sir Leicester, quite unconscious, reads on through his double eyeglass, occasionally stopping to remove his glass and express approval as very true indeed, very properly put. I have frequently made the same remark myself invariably losing his place after each observation and going up and down the column to find it again." Unquote. What an interesting passage and Dickens, as we know, works a lot in caricature and so I see so much caricature in this passage in the sense that we know that Lady Deadlock, for some reason or other, I think it depends on your reading, I would say for sure in my first reading of this, I didn't think too much about her mask. I just thought that she's one of those people who has this mask that comes very naturally to her and she just employs it at will. But we know from further reading that this is, the mask is a product of her grief, is all it is. and to caricature the mask, knowing that it's a product of her grief is a very fascinating thing to do in this passage. And we have 
again, this reminder not to take everything too seriously with the way that Lady and Leicester Deadlock are reacting. And Sir Leicester Deadlock, of course, this kind of passive character, he reminds me of Mr. Turveydrop, Caddy Jellybee's husband's father, her father-in-law. And he has that sort of state of deportment about him, that state of, I'm just going to do this because it's pompous and because it's polite. Uh, and the way that he's reading to himself here, very true indeed, is he's making up for Lady Dedlock's lack of response and lack of engagement with him, which I find to be sad, but also particularly funny. And we have this, again, this caricature in the middle of this quite serious serial where we're looking more and more into Lady Dedlock's mystery and her grief and yet there's this moment of fresh air. Serial 10, Chapter 30. The only thing I wanted to com comment about in this chapter was the unlikely relationship between Mr. Jellybee and Mr. Turveydrop and I wanted to look briefly at this interesting contrast and similarity. It's almost like a compare and contrast between these two families where both families are equally as dysfunctional, I would argue. And even though I would say Caddy Jellybee's family, since it's larger, since there are more children, more lives involved, it's a bit more destructive than Mr. Turveydrop's. And yet we have this death of Prince Turveydrop's mother and lots of, again, grief and sorrow in that family as a result of the dysfunction. And so there really, there really is not much comparison between the dysfunctionality of them. And yet there's this contrast between Mr. Jellybee, who is through his bankruptcy at this point, and who has started to find contentment and has started to find peace in a way that he never has before. And the worst thing that he could have probably imagined happened to him, and yet he's fine. And he's proves to continue to be resilient. Again, a bit passive in character, like Leicester Dudlock a little bit, but he still moves forward and he starts developing this beautiful relationship with his daughter that they never had before. And so there's there's healing going on there and there's moving on. And that Mr. Jellybee would strike up a relationship with Mr. Turveydrop, I think is not only a sign of a truce in some instances, but also a sign of contrast for them because Mr. Turveydrop effectively doesn't change. Effectively all that happens is Caddy gets picked up and thrown into the working machine that is the Turveydrop dance company. She starts dancing basically until her death as well to keep maintaining Mr. Turveydrop's lifestyle of deportment. And so there's a lot of motion going on in the sense that some things like Caddy's relationship with her father are improving, are healing, and some things are going further and further out of control. And I talk about that a bit more in the first episode as well. Chapter 31. Here, 
I wanted to just bring up this huge irony that has been tickling my ear ever since I read it, read it in this chapter. So Skimpole, who is the childish figure that hangs on to Cousin John because he doesn't really have any sense of money, supposedly, he's a doctor and he wants um, Joe thrown out. Who? Why would you do this? I am so tickled by this whole idea that I just wanted to vent about it here. Essentially what Skimpole is doing, so Joe, we know, or we can conjecture, has smallpox. He's the one that gives smallpox to Charlie and to Esther. And Skimpole says, well, he'd be no worse off than he was when you found him. And it's just ironic because you could compare Skimpole and Joe here in the sense that neither of them, well, I'll say this, they both are in a similar position in the sense that they rely on other people to get their livelihoods. And the fact that Skimpole doesn't have the self-knowledge or perception to see that and to have empathy and compassion for Joe is particularly troubling to me because we have this character. And I think this is what's troubling maybe to Esther later in this section is that we have this character who now has somewhat power or influence over Richard, who's in a particularly troubled state over Jarndyce and Jarndyce, and I would argue a vulnerable state in that regard. So we have this character who has no ounce of self-perception and who is demonstrating here a lack of empathy and who has influence over a character who is vulnerable and is making important decisions. So there's lots in that sense that is troubling and that I wanted to get off my chest. Chapter 32, page 423. Quote, It is night in Lincoln's Inn perplexed and troublous valley of the shadow of the law where suitors generally find but little day and fat candles are snuffed out in offices and clerks have rattled down the crazy wooden stairs and dispersed. The bell that rings at nine o'clock has ceased its doleful clangor about nothing and the gates are shut and the night porter, a solemn warder with a mighty power of sleep, keeps guard in his lodge. From tiers of staircase windows, clogged lamps like the eyes of equity, blare at Argus with a fathomless pocket for every eye and an eye upon it, dimly blink at the stars. In dirty upper casements, here and there, hazy little patches of candlelight reveal, page 424, where some wise draughtsman and conveyancer yet toils for the entanglement of real estate that meshes of sheepskin in the average ratio of about a dozen of sheep to an acre of land." Unquote. So we have another lush description. You all know that I am a sucker for these kinds of descriptions, especially because of the cyclic nature of this book, going back and back and back to description in the omniscient voice, then Esther's narrative, description, Esther, in these kind of lopsided circles. And I love that intention it seems to me to be intentional at least maybe dickens didn't find it intentional but that beautiful spacing of the novel between these two narrative senses and i found this passage interesting because you could sort of apply 
the tirelessness of this scene to the book as a whole and look at this particular scene as a meta discourse or a meta observation of the book as a whole and the plot never ceasing, always cyclic, always up with clogged lamps, all these things. And when you consider it like that, it becomes even more beautiful. And of course, this is also the chapter where Crook spontaneously combusts. And I have questions. I just have questions. What work does Crook's spontaneous combustion do for the novel? He could have died literally any other way. <laughs> he could have burned down the apartment building that he was living in. Could have had him have a heart attack could have had him go crazy and commit suicide, any of these things, yet he has to spontaneously combust, <laughs> okay? Is it a device for humor? Which I, that's my guess at this point, is that it must have been humorous to people back then, like, oh, that's ridiculous, spontaneous combustion? Um, it almost reminds me of magical realism in that sense, although magical realism, the point of including something like spontaneous combustion would probably not be humor, it would probably just be to lighten or magicify things up. So could be another thing, it, this book increasingly reminds me of magical realism, but only in these crazy outward instances like this spontaneous combustion. There really isn't much to put this book in this category, uh, aside from these like one or two big elements like the spontaneous combustion. Is it perhaps a commentary against Crook's alcoholism or his stinginess? that he had to die in this way, I'm not sure because if it's a humorous device then maybe that could be the other side of it, maybe it could be a bit more serious that way as a commentary, that would definitely be in Dickens' history and power in that regard. Could it have to do somehow more so than we already know at this point with Jarndyce and Jarndyce? And also, did Crook figure out how to read some of these letters? Possibly? My guess is that Tony and Guppy don't really know the full extent of Crook. I think they might have underestimated him somewhat, and so it's possible, and we don't know at this point in the book, if Crook read part of the letters. Perhaps we will never know. Don't know until next episodes. <laughs> But we just really don't know at this point what led to the spontaneous combustion, what the spontaneous combustion means, is it merely humorous or does it do some other work in the novel? All questions to consider and to comment at if you'd like to. Serial 11, chapter 33. So we begin in this chapter with a bird's eye view of what just happened in the last section and I found this to be really fascinating as I was reading through I read serials 10 and 11 together all in one sitting, so to me I didn't understand it until I realized that it's a product of the serialization that Dickens has done this, and I wonder almost what other products of serialization has Dickens included that we've glossed over on the show and in our reading. Uh, this one could have been 
for example, uh, there could have been a longer stretch of time between serials 10 and 11, making that plot summary particularly notable or particularly important for the readers of this serial. So it's interesting to me this little moment where we've literally just lived through this scene and yet when we happen upon this scene again in the very next chapter, the very next serial, we get an entire overview of it again. And that's one part in which I think reading this book as a section of serials, for instance, or as a way of understanding that this book did not come out all at once, it was not written all at once, and it wasn't really intended to be a whole book. Um, I think that's important for our reading and our look at especially these kinds of moments. Let's go to page 446. Quote, Still they regard the late Mr. Crook's obstinacy in going out of the world by any such byway as wholly unjustifiable and personally offensive. The less the court understands of all this, the more the court likes it, and the greater enjoyment it has in the stock and trade of the soul's arms." Unquote. There's this moment on this page, and it's repeated a couple different times in several different ways, in which the sentiment is, why did Crook have to spite us by dying in this manner? And it's like, what? He died, you know? It's, his death should be mourned in that sense. And it's this ridiculousness about this whole passage. Even in Crook's death, he proves to be ridiculous. And again, it's, I think it's partly caricature. I think it's gallows humor, which I love. And it's this section where you look at it and you go, what do you mean? What do you mean he had to die like this? What do you mean by scorning his death in this way? And it's hilarious uh, in that sense. And that's something I think that comes out in Dickens's characteristic humor. And not a lot of people know that Dickens was a humorist and a caricaturist and especially in his early works, this is a late work of his, but especially in his early works, yeah, he wrote a bunch of humor. I think Nicholas Nickleby, there's lots of examples of his like slapstick humor that he writes and this is one moment where I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he's hiding humor in this incredibly formal twisted up language. Chapter 34. So my question is, in, of this chapter, I wonder what Mrs. Rouncewell was doing at Tolkinghorn's office. This is when Mr. George and Mr. Bagnet are waiting at Tolkinghorn's office to get in to hopefully extend Mr. George's loan on the shooting gallery. And Mrs. Rouncewell and exits the office and she comments on their both being soldiers because as we know, her young son died, he was a soldier. and. It's interesting to me to parallel Mrs. Rouncewell with Tolkienhorn in this way because they're both fixed figures in some senses at Chesney Wald in the Deadlock Estate and they're both known for their old-fashionedness and they're both known for this uh, particular fanciness or formality that of course goes and does work to suit the Deadlocks. So I found it just interesting, this little moment 
in the novel where Mrs. Rouncewell comes and meets George and his friend at Mr. Tolkienhorn's. Very interesting moment. Chapter 35, page 465. We're with Esther now, as we know from the first person narration. Quote, while I was very ill, the way in which these divisions of time became confused with one another distressed my mind exceedingly. At once a child, an elder girl, and the little woman I had been so happy as, I was not only oppressed by cares and difficulties adapted to each station, but by the great perplexity of endlessly trying to reconcile them. I suppose that few who have not been in such a condition can quite understand what I mean or what painful unrest arose from this source." Unquote. This really shows Esther's fastidiousness of character and her tendency to worry as well. She, I would say that a lot of times in these kinds of books, illness, times of great stress, uh, moments where there's one choice or the other, they heighten the characteristics of these characters. And so what's heightened here in Esther is her fastidiousness, her anxiety of all these loose ends, and her tendency to micromanage everything about her. And I also liked the way in which Dickens expressed this. Quote, at once a child, an elder girl, and the little woman I had been so happy as, unquote. There's this sort of perpetual contentedness that Esther rests in, and her discontentedness in this passage comes from the fact that she can't get up and be contented, uh, is the way I see it. And so I really enjoyed this little look into Esther, and I've read a bit about Esther for these episodes as I've gotten more curious about her. and. Some people say she's this great heroine of literature. Some people say he, she's undermined and all these things. I think it's in between. I think she's a really brave and interesting character in the book. And of course, she doesn't have like a lot of chances to be like the savior or anything like that, but she is brave in her relationships and she has strong values and she creates strong boundaries with characters even when it's hard and that's one thing that I think more people could stand to do honestly and so Esther to me is someone who we can learn from. Page 469 and this is when John Jardis is talking about what the chancery suit is doing to Richard. Quote, how can we stand amazed at poor Rick? A young man so unfortunate, here he fell into a lower tone, as if he were thinking aloud, cannot at first believe, who could, that chancery is what it is. He looks to it flushed and fitfully to do something with his interests and bring them to some settlement. It procrastinates, disappoints, tries, tortures him, wears out his sanguine hopes and patience, thread by thread. But still he looks to it and hankers after it and finds his whole world treacherous and hollow. Well, well, well. Enough of this, my dear." Unquote. So it's really a great explanation of Chancery in general and of Jarnus and Jarnus in general, isn't it? Through how Cousin John explains the changes in Richard. This interestingly, a contrast to Esther, what we were just talking about, this kind of discontentedness, this 
fitfulness that Richard is falling into and that really he's propelling himself into, I would say. And it's this very fascinating microcosm of what's going on again in the whole book. And I love drawing out these conclusions because I find them to be really helpful for my conception of the book as a whole. Serial 12, chapter 36, page 478. Quote, For I had not yet looked in the glass, and had never asked to have my own restored to me. I knew this to be a weakness, which must be overcome, but I had always said to myself that I would begin afresh when I got to where I now was. Therefore I had wanted to be alone, and therefore I said, now alone, in my own room, Esther, if you are to be happy, if you are to have any right to pray to be true-hearted, you must keep your word, my dear. I was quite resolved to keep it, but I sat down for a little while first to reflect on all my blessings. And then I said my prayers and thought of a little more. My hair had not been cut off, though it had been in danger more than once. It was long and thick. I let it down and shook it out and went up to the glass upon the dressing table. There was a little muslin curtain drawn across it. I drew it back and stood for a moment, looking through such a veil of my own hair that I could see nothing else. Then I put my hair aside and looked at the reflection in the mirror, encouraged by seeing how placidly it looked at me. I was very much changed. Oh, very, very much. At first, my face was so strange to me that I think I should have put my hands up before it and stared back, but for the encouragement I have mentioned. Very soon it became more familiar, and then I knew the extent of the alteration in it better than I had done at first. It was not like what I had expected, but I had expected nothing definite, and I dare say anything definite would have surprised me." Unquote. So, wow, I think this is one of my favorite moments in the text so far. I really love this moment, it's so fascinating, of... Esther looking at herself in the looking glass, looking for how her face has changed due to the scarring of smallpox. And there's lots of emotion, lots of self-reflection tied up into this moment for Esther. She, as we know, is very humble and she is not meant to care about all of these things like vanity, for example. And yet it does matter. It matters because there's a Mr. Woodcourt in question. It matters because of all her social engagements, how she's supposed to keep relationships if they can't even look at her kind of thing. So it matters to the, it matters greatly to her life in that sense. And she reflects that she'd never been super beautiful before, but it's this war almost of outer versus inner beauty that she has to guard herself against thinking about too much and again it's such a great moment i would if you had time go back and look at it again it's page 478 uh, chapter 36 page 485 this is lady dedlock and esther talking about Tolkienhorn. quote has he so little pity or compunction he has none, and no anger. He is indifferent to everything but his calling. 
His calling is the acquisition of secrets and the holding possession of such power as they give him, with no sharer or opponent in it. I like this description of Tolkienhorn, I really do. It's so characteristic of him. And it does remind me that we really haven't gotten too big of a an insight into what he, when in fact he does. We know that he's a lawyer, we know that he handles estates now with Mr. Smallweed and the Crook estate. We know that he handles uh, somehow uh, loans, for instance. So we know a lot about um, the general broad strokes of what he does, but we don't know the specifics. And I really like this summary of he is just looking after secrets. That's what he's really after. On page 49, I'm not gonna read the quote, but there is a description of Chesney Wald and the Ghost Walk. After Esther finds the grave news that Lady Dedlock is her mother, she goes and takes a walk at Chesney Wald, uh, and she describes Chesney Wald as Chesney Wald has not been described before, especially by Esther. It's no longer this stately house, it's this very scary, haunted, gray, dim house, and she is interesting allowing her interestingly allowing her feelings to influence this space chapter 37 page 507 quote i look along the road before me where the distance already shortens and the journey's end is growing visible and true and good above the dead sea of the chancery suit and all the ashy fruit it casts ashore, I think I see my darling." Unquote. What an interesting moment at the end of this chapter of, of social turmoil. And we have a moment where Esther really thinks that the jarndyce suit is going to end. And we don't know, of course, at this point if the jarndyce suit will really end. It seems like a farce to me. But I equally, I equally can see the Chancery suit finally ending after years and years and years and deaths and births and uh, marriages and all these things. Um, but I can also see it never ending as it never has. Chapter 38, page 517. And here's the last bit of this uh, serial, this four serial that we're reading for this week. Quote, the struggle in Mr. Guppy's breast and the numerous oscillations it occasioned him between his mother's door and us were sufficiently conspicuous in the windy street, particularly as his hair wanted cutting, to make us hurry away. I did so with a lightened heart, but when we last looked back, Mr. Guppy was still oscillating in the same troubled state of mind, unquote. What an interesting foreboding ending. <laughs> it's over with Lady Dedlock from his perspective, right? From Guppy's perspective, he's already visited Lady Dedlock telling her that he doesn't have the letters that will prove Esther's connection to her and her connection to Hawden. So isn't it over for Guppy? Open question for all of you and also for the next couple serials here. Fascinating ending super excited to get to the next four serials in july i hope you all enjoyed this series of episodes this week on bleak house 
serials 9 through 12. I certainly enjoyed putting them together. Comments, questions, leave them under the discussion post for the last episode uh, at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the post for this episode. All right, I will see you all next week. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.